0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know... Operation Matterhorn holiday operated Thomas Cook collapses, triggering the UK's largest peacetime rescue effort. WeWork's new man, speculation mounting that the firm's biggest shareholder SoftBank might push for fresh management. And back to the future, the first Bitcoin futures exchange launching today. It's Monday, let's make a move. Welcome to First Move once again this Monday and a very special guest kicking off trading this week. We've got First Lady Melania Trump ringing the opening bell later on this morning promoting her Be Best initiative for kids. So that's actually quite exciting here at the New York Stock Exchange. Of course, I have to say though, stocks not being their best this morning pre-market. Take a look at what we're seeing for futures right now. We begin the first Sorry, the final full trading week of Q3. I'll get my teeth in gear at some point now. The majors falling some 1% last week, the Dow in fact uh, easing some one percent though it's worth watching the cyclical stocks again this week i think energy the banks of course they've been weak performers in recent weeks as um, bond yields have risen i mean the opposite they've been the outperformers of course now we're still about one percent of record highs as a marker i call that relative resilience given the levels of uh, new uncertainty talks on the the saudi explosions of course tensions with iran ratcheting up and china trade talks too we've also got earnings season just around the corner and Goldman Sachs warning that this could be another volatile October. It's already been a volatile September. Hong Kong stocks falling overnight for a sixth straight session after another weekend of protests. Chinese stocks also falling some 1%, perhaps not helped by President Trump's comments Friday when he said he's not in favor of a partial trade deal. That could prove tough going forward. What about Europe's markets too? A sea of red, I can tell you. Data there showing business activity stalled again this month. Euro area manufacturing sentiment falling two to an 83-month low. And Germany posting its worst reading in a decade. We'll be talking more about Europe later in the show, but for now, I have to say sentiment in the UK isn't much better on the news that the world's oldest travel company, Thomas Cook, has collapsed. And that's where we're going to start the drivers. Thomas Cook collapsing 600,000 of its customers currently on holiday and therefore stranded the UK's largest peacetime repatriation effort ever has been launched. Sean Defterius and Melissa Bell joining us on this story. Melissa, I'm going to come to you because we can talk about the financials for the company, but not just for UK travellers, but international travellers too, stranded all around the world. Talk us through this.
2: That's right. It is that human dimension to the story, Julia, that is perhaps the most troubling. All of those tourists, 600,000 of them abroad who woke up this morning to find that they were stranded, had no way of knowing how they were going to get back from their holidays, or indeed, how are they going to pay the hotels they were in with Thomas Cook's collapse? Then there are also all of those very many tourists who are planning to leave today or in the next few days. Julia, here at Gatwick, we've met a few of them this morning who hadn't had the alert or who decided to come along anyway to figure out how they were going to get their money back or how they were going to get on a flight. We spoke to a couple of Canadian uh, students who said, look, we were due to go to Malta this morning, and all we're being told is that we need to make alternative travel arrangements that we're going to have to pay for ourselves. And I think it's important to bear in mind the kind of uh, tourism that Thomas Cook developed and catered to. These are not necessarily the wealthiest travelers. These are uh, people who'd booked, often inexpensive, package uh, holidays, who then find themselves either stranded aboard or out of pocket at home. So a great deal of anger Um, As a result of this collapse overnight, it was also, Julia, the suddenness of it. It wasn't that we didn't know that Thomas Cook was facing financial trouble. We did. We knew that it was involved in talks over a rescue package. But it was the collapse of those talks overnight that led the CEO to make this announcement.
3: Despite huge efforts over a number of months and further intense negotiations in recent days, We have not been able to secure a deal to save our business. It has been my privilege to lead Thomas Cook. It is deeply distressing to me that it has not been possible to save one of the most loved brands in travel.
1: So to your point here, the whole reason why people book these package holidays in the UK is because there are protections, there's a backup mechanism here, if indeed this kind of situation happens. John, come in here and explain what happened, because again, Melissa pointed out, this is not new news, it was just an ultimate collapse and no rescue being achieved for this company over the weekend.
4: Yeah, they went down to the wire, as you know, Julia, to try to get a rescue package, and that didn't happen. They were looking at the largest shareholder of Thomas Cook, Fosun, the uh, Shanghai-based company, which has 18 percent, but didn't want to throw good money after bad in this situation. I thought the uh, Tourism Association for Operators in the island of Crete in Greece hit the nail right on the head, saying this was like a 7.0 on the Richter scale. Uh, earthquake, which may turn into a tsunami, because on that island alone they have uh, just 20,000, just 20,000 on one island. Uh, stranded there looking to try to get back to to their home bases, and they get a half a million customers a year. Then there's that other ripple effect question mark. uh, Do the tourist companies in Crete get their money from Thomas Cook from the August and September bookings? That's a huge question mark. Uh, The cash injection they were looking at was nearly $300 million, but the government said at the end of the day Thomas Cook needed a billion dollars. So we're hearing grumblings about whether the government should have stepped in and rescued Thomas Cook because of the history uh, here going back before travel a flight here, right? Because they preceded that going back 178 years. Uh, After the bailout of RBS, going back to the 2008, 9, and 10 financial crisis, this conservative government clearly did not want to be in the travel business going forward. Uh, We have a precedent here with Monarch Airlines going back to two years ago, October 2017, leaving 100,000 passengers traveling. Uh, stranded. uh, They, too, did not get a bailout. I would have been very surprised, despite the political situation here in the UK, if the government would have said, here's the checkbook, here's a billion dollars, let's keep you operating.
1: Yeah, I mean, it sets a huge precedent here. And, and to your point about Crete, and it's a great one, the likes of Greece, Turkey, Spain, all the tourism industries mm. rely here to a larger extent on Thomas Cook. And I do want to reiterate that point. Melissa, I just want to go back to you because there are workers involved here to 21,000 workers here for Thomas Cook. And I, I saw actually Unite Union coming forward and saying this was Economic terrorism here, vandalism, my apologies. Economic vandalism here. Uh, to John's point there, I mean, at what point do you draw the line here and say that a government has to step in and support workers, particularly given the broader backdrop here with the challenges
2: of Brexit already? It's a tough question. Uh, it's a tough question, and it is exactly that. It is because, as John was just explaining, in the end, those bailout talks hit a snag, hit a glitch when uh, the uh, company needed to find an extra 200 million contingency funds, reached out to the British government and was told no. And, of course, the British government have answered those criticisms from the trade unions, that accusation of economic vandalism, uh, those uh, that talk about the 21,000 people who very brutally found themselves unemployed overnight. The British government has said, look, essentially, if we had bailed them out this time, if we provided the money, it was simply putting off a collapse that would have been inevitable at some point. Anyway, this is simply a, a model, an economic model that was no longer fit for the 21st century, Julia.
1: Yeah, it's a tough one. Uh, Melissa Bell there and uh, John Devteris guys, thank you so much for that, and we'll come back to this story later on in the show. For now, let's move on to our next driver, which is WeWork, and speculation mounting that we could see some kind of boardroom reshuffle, including a removal, perhaps, of this CEO, Adam Newman. Uh, SoftBank is in focus here as the largest shareholder and, of course, pumping lots of money into this company. Claire Sebastian joins me here at the Stock Exchange. How exciting. Great to have you with us. What do we know about this? Because what we're talking about here is Adam Newman he may just be the CEO but he's also
3: a huge shareholder and very influential here too. Right. This is a potential revolt within the board yeah. uh, at WeWork. Civil War. Right. Exactly. This is a report from the Wall Street Journal at the moment we haven't independently confirmed it but basically what they're saying is the board could meet as soon as this week and several members including those with ties to SoftBank which, as you say is hugely influential the the largest shareholder in the company are seeking to remove Adam Newman as CEO and potentially create a new position for him as non-executive director which would uh, keep him t- Tied to the company he founded, but would remove his uh, power over the day-to-day running of the of the company. Now, this, of course, follows months—well, actually, just over a month—of uh, of turmoil after they filed paperwork to go public. Huge questions around the governance, around the business model, around the mounting losses, and indeed around the personal contact of Adam Newman himself. It was reported again by the Wall Street Journal that he boarded an international flight with marijuana. So huge questions around him. And it seems that there are those on the board who feel that they will be better place to go forward with an IPO without him at the helm. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? It's got odes of Uber as well. And actually, we've seen yeah. how well that IPO went, quite
1: frankly. But he does have the power to say, you know what, I'm going to fire the entire yeah. board. The problem is, and you've hit the nail on the head here with the sheer amount of losses that this company has yeah. right now, They need SoftBank, arguably, and SoftBank's money for the future.
3: So his hands are tied. It's it's interesting because on the one hand, this is a gamble by by those directors. We don't know who they are uh, who want to oust him because he still will have a lot of power. He is the biggest shareholder. He will still have the power to fire the entire board, which is staggering if you think about it. But on the other hand, they do need money. That's why they uh, are still saying they want to do this IPO by the end of the year. That's why they need to keep uh, SoftBank on side. And as you say, the losses are staggering. Almost 2 billion is what they lost last year. Almost 900, more than 900 million in the first six months uh, of this year. And their their lease obligations and all their other liabilities uh, are, are quite frankly unnerving to investors. Yeah, civil war
1: potentially. We have to see how this plays out. So Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. All right, let's move on. I'm going to bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that we are following here around the world. U.S. President Donald Trump admits he talked about Joe Biden on a call with the president of Ukraine, but insists there was nothing wrong with that conversation. President Trump has been fending off questions about whether he pressed a foreign leader for material that could damage a political rival. The U.S. and Ukrainian presidents are among the world's leaders gathering at the United Nations meetings this week. Ahead of the U.N. General Assembly, Ukraine's Vladimir Zelensky tweeted a message promoting an anti-corruption hotline, saying we will never overcome corruption if we close our eyes to it. Mr. Zelensky's previous career was as a comedian. No connection to those two sentences. Iran's president will also be at the big gathering in New York, but President Trump says he has no intention of meeting with Hassan Rouhani. Last week, Iran denied it was involved in attacks on Saudi Arabia's oil industry and the U.S. announced fresh sanctions against Tehran. Now, the UN's opening event this year is a summit to address the overheating world. Climate change, of course. President Trump says he's skipping that and will hold his own session on religious persecution. Our Nick Robinson is there and joins us live. Nick, great to have you with us. In any other circumstances, if the events of the last week hadn't happened, we would be talking about, I think, the importance of climate change. But the risk here is what happens with Iran, whether the two presidents meet or not, and what comes next, perhaps overshadows everything here.
5: Sure, look, I mean, I think if President Trump was to go against what we've heard him say already, that he won't now meet with President Rouhani, that, of course, just a week ago was a a possibility. It had sort of grown out of the G7, if you like, where the French president who was hosting the G7 brought in, the Iranian foreign minister. Um, This was really sort of signaling that something was happening in back diplomatic channels, but, of course, Saudi Arabia was hit by those missiles last weekend. And now the position here at the the UNGA, uh, many, many topics and meetings to be had. But in the background, really, Uh, from a Saudi-Emirati perspective, the real uh, concern that President Trump sticks with what he's saying at the moment, that he doesn't meet with President Rouhani, because there's a real sense uh, from the Saudi perspective, from the Emirati perspective, that if President Trump at this moment appears weak on Iran, then there could be more strikes at the scale, and perhaps worse, that we saw uh, just nine days ago in Saudi Arabia. So that's... uh, clearly uh, something to sort of watch uh, the back channels for here, if you will. The Saudis on a very strong mission here to uh, try and bring international support for their position bring UN investigators, international investigators, towards their position. We've heard movements from that, from the British government, saying that they believe high degree of probability that the attacks will launch from Iranian soil. The French and the Germans are a little more skeptical, but the Saudis bringing them into the process of the investigation. And if they can bring them along diplomatically, then that can sort of strengthen, perhaps, the resolve and positioning of President Trump on this. But the real concern is they don't know from one day to the next what President Trump's position towards Iran is going to be. Julia?
1: Absolutely. And of course, promotes the uh, Saudi's argument here that it needs to be an international coalition or a group that protects these assets, given the importance of them globally at this stage. Nick, I do want to bring the conversation, though, back to the importance of climate change. A huge skeptic, of course, in President Trump, not even going to be part of the conversation here about climate change, in fact, going to be talking about other things. What concrete action? Can we see here, particularly as business leaders, politicians, and the like all meet in one place this week to talk about this?
5: Yeah, uh, and, uh, Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary-General, has said that what he wants to hear. Uh, you know, the speeches that he wants to hear uh, today from leaders uh, are sort of concrete steps and commitments about how they can and the planet can reduce uh, the, the growing, uh, the, the, the climbing temperatures. That's the real concern. Um, 91 heads of state here, of course, significantly, President Putin's not here. Uh, President Xi, of China's not here. President Trump not engaging in the in the in the climate change debate. Emmanuel. Macron who has a passion about this issue of course will be speaking today so that that's that is a speech to be listening to very carefully but what what is hoped that can be achieved out of this our countries laying out platforms and agendas and investments significantly Investment, and that's what the German Chancellor Angela Merkel has been talking about as well. Very significant investment in trying to reduce, uh, uh, in trying to reduce the effects of climate change and mitigate against the uh, against the rising sea levels. And of course, here you will have a representation from Amazonian tribes. Uh, the Brazilian uh, prime, uh, President also expected to be here as well. And of course, the Amazon rainforest, which we all saw those images of so much of it burning just a couple of weeks ago, um, part of the conversation but it is those concrete investments in substantial real acts uh, that will be hoped for, um, at least as the discussion, at least, here at the UN.
1: Such a great point speak louder than words, particularly at this moment. Nick Robertson, thank you so much for that update there. And coming up on the show, we'll be speaking to the Dutch bank ING CEO about the efforts that that bank and the broader financial sector is taking to do that. But for now, we're going to take a break here on First Move. Coming up, the first lady ringing the opening bell here this morning. And ICE, international continental exchanging, going crypto crazy. A crypto futures platform launching today and it's backed By some big names like Microsoft and Starbucks. All the details coming up. Stay with CNN. Welcome back to First Move with Jeffrey Kleintop. He's Senior Vice President and Chief Investment Strategist at Charles Schwab. Great to have you with us, sir, and uh, happy Monday morning. Big week, of course, and we've been talking about it on the show for the UN. Also, trade, of course, too, and I'm not talking US-China this time around, which our viewers will probably be relieved about. The potential for a US-Japan trade deal. Talk me through this, because I think we should keep a focus on this, too.
6: This is potentially a a pretty big deal. Japan is the third largest economy in the world and one of the U.S.'s major trading partners. So uh, establishing a deal between the U.S. and Japan is pretty big. This is a deal that would involve no new auto tariffs. That's a relief to auto manufacturers on both sides. Remember, the auto supply chains crisscross so many borders. This would be a huge cost uh, to reconfigure those supply chains for for businesses. So this is a bit of a relief. And it follows uh, a deal earlier in the year with South Korea. And maybe we'll get to sign those deals with Canada and Mexico. That would make four of the the U.S.'s largest six or seven trading partners having uh, established a deal this year. That's some better trade news that hasn't been getting through with the U.S.-China headlines.
1: Okay. So this is really important. It could also surely, therefore, be Perhaps a prelude if we manage to see a US-Europe trade deal here because I can't help feeling that the threat of auto tariffs on European automakers has also had a, a sort of dampening effect on sentiment in Europe too. Would you agree or disagree?
6: Absolutely, I would agree with that. I think you're right on the mark. Autos are are, are key here. And look at what's happened with Germany. This morning we get the PMI data showing how weak Germany's economy is tied to manufacturing, which is, of course, tied to auto production. So uh, if we could see some uh, clarity on the outlook for what auto demand outside of Germany might look like, I think that would certainly uh, lead to some uh, perhaps stabilization in the manufacturing sector, so critical to the direction of the European economy right now.
1: You know, it's quite fascinating. You point out as well that the European Central Bank's decision to restart QE to further lower rates was actually the most pivotal central bank decision that we've had over the last couple of weeks. And you looked at the performance of of European stock markets into QE back in 2005. They rallied then and then they stagnated. What do you think happens this time around? What's different potentially?
6: What is potentially different this time is that in addition to restarting QE, the European Central Bank is attempting to shield the banks from some of the negative consequences of a further drop in in policy rates. So, of course, we know that... A decline in short-term interest rates is a drag on the profitability of banks, and because of course, they have to pay out uh, some type of income for profits uh, to depositors, I'm sorry, for depositors, but of course, where are they getting that money from with negative interest rates? And so the consequence this time may be different in that they're not sort of bleeding to the same degree uh, on on paying out on those deposits, and that may shield them from some of the negative consequences on their income statement, whereas the QE would help them on the balance sheet as well. so that combination has helped lift european bank stocks so far 11% this month that's a nice rally we'll see if that uh, has any legs do
1: you think there's more room to go there because you stand out to me as someone who often comes on this show and says look don't just look at the united states look elsewhere there is value and and the sort of the noise on an international basis perhaps is suppressing some of the valuations there and there are opportunities Do you continue to believe that despite everything else that's going on?
6: Yeah, it's a little harder this morning with, with the very disappointing <laughs> news there in the manufacturing sector. Uh, but, you know, we, we haven't gotten the U.S. PMI yet. That'll be coming out, of course, in 15 or 20 minutes or so and could also show uh, a similar disappointment. So, yes, I do think broader diversification, particularly into an area like Europe, where maybe we're starting to see a rotation where some of the value sectors, the banks may establish some new leadership, something we haven't seen in a while. That could maybe refresh the, uh, the, the, the market performance, the earnings back drop uh, that could lead uh, the European markets to actually outperform. We've seen some of that so far in the month of September, though a bit of that wiped out this morning.
1: Brilliant. Jeffrey, great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. And you hang on in there with your views. Go the Europeans. Jeffrey Kleintop there, the senior vice president and chief investment strategist at Schwab. Great to have you on the show, sir. All right, so we've been talking about it, and I don't know whether you heard the clapping behind me, but um, there's some excitement here at the New York Stock Exchange, Washington, coming to Wall Street, as I've mentioned, with uh, Melania Trump ringing the opening bell. Claire Sebastian joins us. More, Claire, be your best this morning, and tell me what we can expect.
3: Right. Well, we can see the first lady just oh, right. now. She's just been oh, uh, signing nice. the book of distinguished visitors, which is what you Fantastic. do before uh, you ring the opening bell, and uh, she's joined by some children from the UN International School, and. Um, She's basically, there's a lot of buzz down there. We can see a lot of photographers, there's been a lot of security, extra security, but basically she's promoting this initiative, Be Best, you can see all the signage there. This is about educating children on, on issues affecting them, be it well-being, opioid abuse, online safety, something that she has faced some criticism for, given the performance yes. of her husband on Twitter. But this is something that she's been doing now for over a year. And, and this is you know a, a big deal for her. Ringing the bell at the New York Stock Exchange is, is pretty historic. The, one trader told me this morning they can't remember uh, in, over the last 40 years that a First Lady has done the opening bell. We know Laura Bush did the closing bell in 2006. But, but, but this is a big deal for yeah, her. Yeah, this
1: early morning get-up can be quite painful, quite frankly. You're, um, you're Looking at live pictures now as uh, Melania makes her way around the New York Stock Exchange, it is an exciting moment, but to your point as well, there has been some criticism right. that perhaps the mandate of Be Best is is too broad right. and too challenging here. It's how do you tackle all of these things? And that's not to say they aren't all vital, critical issues. Right, here. it's clearly
3: a really good cause championing the, the, the issues affecting children, and particularly opioid abuse. But she, she's been doing this now since May of 2008. She broadened two of her pillars uh, in May of this year. Opioid abuse was originally focused yeah. on neonatal abstinence syndrome, and social media was originally the focus now. It's online safety. In general, but uh, but yeah, there's been there's been some criticism that there's not a lot that's actually been done. It's just been fact finding. Yeah, so far. well,
1: we're always our best on first move. But uh, be best and Melania Trump, the first lady, ringing the opening bell after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move Live from the New York Stock Exchange. in a very exciting ringing of the opening bell this morning by uh, the American First Lady, Melania Trump, ringing the bell to promote her children's charity, Be Best, of course. And as you can see, they're joined by members of the UN's international school as well. Lots of smiling faces. Claire Sebastian is back with
3: us talk us through it this is great right well this is a historic moment Uh, this is a very good forum for her to promote this initiative obviously a lot of people ring the opening bell for different reasons be it an ipo uh, some other big event for a company it's a really good way just to draw attention to something and this is something that she's really focused on the be best initiative as i said three pillars it's it's well-being for children online safety and opioid abuse. Now there has been a little bit of controversy. The children uh, are from the UN International School. The school published a letter from its executive director to parents online where he said they considered the potential sensitivity of this visit and the fact that there might be some opposition, but they decided to go ahead because uh, because you know the, the whole point of the UN is to give voice to different opinions. And they said children who are here it's all voluntary yet they had they were oversubscribed so very enthusiastic i think nine and ten year olds there this morning i was about to say
1: these parents
3: or the parents of these children yeah. also very excited yeah. to um, to get this because
1: it is a historic moment right. quite frankly and uh, actually i know that the opening bell seemed to ring for Less time this morning, otherwise they should have been wearing earmuffs because it is actually quite loud as well here
3: too. Right, and she's in town obviously for the for the UN, the yeah. United Nations General Assembly, and this is slightly unusual this year. We're told that uh, unlike previous years, the last two years where she's hosted a luncheon with spouses of UN leaders, she's not doing that this year, according to her office. She's just doing this event, so this really is you know a big chance for her to get out there. She's got her signage all across the New York Stock Exchange. A, a really big moment for this initiative that that has been criticised, as I said, for being a little a little short on substance, a little short on action. Although obviously. Uh, some very lofty very very big ideas.
1: And she's done a lot of travel around the world. Right. I, mean, I remember her being in Africa and mm-hmm. talking to or uh, going to schools right. there and promoting this. It's not even just an American initiative exactly. it's it's wide in scope and yeah. scale in particular. Do we know what she's wearing?
3: We haven't had word on what the designer is yet. It's a very, oh. it's a very sombre looking black dress, very appropriate conservative. for the conservative Exchange.
1: Conservative. Fantastic. Claire, thank you so much for that. We'll continue to watch the First Lady as she progresses around the New York Stock Exchange. But an exciting moment here, as Claire mentioned, the First Lady ringing the opening bell in aid of Be Best, her own The First Lady's initiative. All right let me walk you through what what we're seeing so far this morning stocks are modestly lower this morning in uh, early trading the last full week of trading for the third quarter actually in fact stocks falling for the first time in four weeks last week was still in aggregate though for the S&P 500, just 1% away from recent record highs. Hopes for upcoming US-China trade talks, of course, next month. Uh, Potential booster sentiment, I say that with half an eyebrow raised at least. Interesting gauge on market sentiment this week as well. The money losing exercise bike company, Peloton, set to go public. So uh, we'll be watching that as well. Let me walk you through the global movers this morning to GM shares. Under a bit of pressure here, the UAW strike entering its eighth day today. Both sides meeting over the weekend for fresh contract talks, but no progress reported. Forty thousand auto workers on the picket line as a result here. What about Alibaba? Well, their ADRs also under pressure. The company holding day two of their investor day over in China. The company's CEO and new chairman set to brief investors on things like revenue guidance in particular. Also, Roku shares are rising. The company's stock, though, plunged some 19 percent on Friday after a pivotal research analyst initiated coverage with a sell rating. Oppenheimer weighing in, though, on Friday, saying it was keeping its outperform rating, citing Roku's market dominance in streaming devices. And Apple finally shares in focus. The company says Oprah Winfrey's exclusive book club interviews will begin streaming on Apple TV beginning in november oh the streaming wars all right let's bring it back to our top story now the world's oldest travel company thomas cook collapsing over the weekend thomas cook ceo says the outcome is quote devastating melissa bell at london gatwick's airport four is devastating of course too for the travelers hundreds of thousands of them that are caught around the world on holiday and now need effective rescue talk us through it melissa
2: that's right. Essentially, the collapse of this company, uh, in a sense, had there had been warnings about it, Julia, since it had announced just a few months ago, one and a half billion pound uh, loss. We knew that it was in talks to try and find some kind of rescue package, package with the Chinese from Fosun, a 900 million pound package uh, that would have helped it stay afloat. In the end, that package, that deal hinged upon an extra 250 million pound uh, contingency fund Uh, that the company looked towards the British government to get. Those talks collapsed dramatically last night. That hope of a deal collapsed with it. And, of course, with that, the terrible news for the 600,000 people who find themselves overnight stranded in various parts of the world who'd had their holidays booked through Thomas Cook or their flights home booked through Thomas Cook. And then the countless people who were planning on going on holiday today or in the next few days, Judy. We've been seeing a few of them come through here who perhaps hadn't seen the headlines or who were hoping nonetheless that some solution might be found telling us that they simply didn't have the means uh, to book any other travel travel, and were desperately hoping that they would get uh, the compensation that they were due. Finally, there is, of course, the question of the 21,000 people who found themselves overnight facing redundancy. Uh, The uh, head of the Unite uh, union that represents a good proportion of them has called it economic vandalism, blaming the British government for not rescuing the world's oldest travel company, Julia. Yeah,
1: devastating all round. Melissa Bell, thank you so much for that update there. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move. But coming up, what did I say earlier? Actions speak louder than words. Well, I can tell you one bank, ING, putting its portfolio behind the Paris Climate Agreement. We've got the CEO with all the latest. Stay with us. We're back in two. welcome back to first move the united nations general assembly kicks off this week with a summit on climate change and in a bid to turn the words into action some of the world's biggest lenders say they've agreed to a new set of principles for managing their money firms representing a third of the global banking industry by assets signed a un pledge to align their businesses with the goals of the paris climate accord one of them is a Dutch lender, ING, that's evolved its own approach, which it calls Terra, to ensure it lines up to its $600 billion portfolio with those Paris goals. Joining us now, the chief executive of ING, Ralph Hammers. Fantastic to have you on the show, as always. That's huge. A, tr- a third of banking assets now saying, look, we're going we're to take this approach.
7: Exactly. What does
1: it mean in practice, though? What it means in
7: practice is first that <clears throat> For years we've been discussing as so how do you calculate that? How do you get your hands uh, around those principles for responsible banking? And how do you manage your indirect footprint? Because this is, a, uh, this is what it's all about. Banks can't really contribute through their di- direct footprint, but we are very powerful in doing it through our clients. So what it means in practice is that you get into a dialogue with your customer in specific sectors and you have the dialogue as to whether they can bring back their footprint and bring it down, in line with the Paris Climate Agreement, that's important.
1: You and I have talked about this in the past, and this idea that you looked at your loan portfolio, you looked at where you were lending and said, okay, we have a high energy weight and a lot of it is to oil and gas companies, and you did this years ago as a bank and said, "Actually." We need to think about this and we need to look at this and say, we're contributing to a carbon footprint because we're giving money to companies
7: exactly.
1: that also need to be perhaps addressing and looking at new technologies and, and looking at different avenues. Yeah. You've been doing this for years, yeah. is the risk at some point you have lending to companies like this that find themselves on the wrong side of regulation is the smart business sense here too oh absolutely as opposed to just protecting absolutely. the climate this yeah,
7: but, is important. It, but it starts with protecting the climate right and it's not limited to the energy sector it's also the cement sector it's automotive it's real estate all of those that are highly that have a high footprint and there's technology available to manage it down And if there's technology available, we want our clients to really invest in that technology and manage it down. If they don't do it, we may exclude them. We may quit our relationship.
1: Wow, so you're at a point where you'd go, you know what, I'm not going to lend you money because you're not responsible enough.
7: Absolutely. Does
1: that make business sense? Because you know, as great as it is to have a third of banking assets, two thirds of banking assets aren't doing this. And something inside me says, perhaps they say, well, you know what, if ING's not lending, I I will.
7: I know. But you know, you got to start somewhere. Just a year ago, we were the only one. Then at the Katowice uh, Convention, we got four more banks to join us. Now we are 131. So this is spreading. So we we have one third of the banking assets now, and we will continue to inspire my colleagues to join us as well. Because if we do it all together, and we address these issues through our client base, We can really make a difference. Do shareholders
1: reward this kind of approach? Because one of the big questions for any company, not just you as a bank, is how do you align shareholder interests as a profit maximizer ultimately with environmental and climate goals? Because that's the big question here.
7: There's two perspectives from a shareholder perspective. The first one is more and more shareholders want us to do this. Right. Yeah, because they have their own kind of KPIs, their own ambitions around this. The second one is, if you're not leading in it, you may be stuck with stranded assets. Right. You've got to write them off. So, from a return perspective, you don't want to be the last bank lending into coal, for example. It's just not. You know, they not could good become for your
1: bad debts exactly. at some point in the future. Exactly. Yeah, it's quite fascinating to see. Very quickly, what's your message to the eight out of ten largest banks in the world that didn't sign up to this? Just too intended. Okay,
7: well, Get if I want the camera. <laughs> well, guys, you know, we're here in New York. Uh, yesterday, we had a session with 131 of your colleagues uh, signing for the, uh, signing the uh, Principles for Responsible Banking. Come and join us and make this a real worldwide movement.
1: Yeah, I like it. All right, I want to talk to you about negative interest rates from the European Central Bank, more stimulus. What do you make of it, because you've long argued. Well, the
7: point is that, you know, first, is there really a need for stimulus? Uh, there was no credit demand an answer. There is no we actually see savings going up in Europe. So there is absolutely no need for it. That's one. Secondly, is there is so much uncertainty in the world around trade wars, around Brexit, geopolitical uncertainty that whatever policy change you make, it's not falling on fertile ground. So from that perspective, it is absolutely not effective. It's not. And from a saver's perspective people basically have less and less return on their savings and uh, actually they see their pension f- uh, uh, f- pensions being eroded, they start to save even more because they're uncertain about their own future. So the psychology is reversed.
1: Some would argue as well, and they, we know this, it makes it more difficult for banks to earn money too. Does it make you more reticent to lend as well because you know, in the end you have to balance the books?
7: Well, clearly, uh, but we you rather know, take some loss with negative rates than do the wrong things. You can't go after business opportunities that just don't make sense just because the money is so cheap. Yeah. You shouldn't do that. I mean, we, we should stay sound bankers. And from that perspective, the tiering of the deposits did help a little bit, at least we came out with, in order to reward to cushion. Uh, and cushion a little bit of the effect. Uh, but overall, it just won't help.
1: Is the risk here that perhaps action that's long been called for by the European Central Bank for nation-states, for governments to take the reforms that would unlock growth, labour market reforms, actually get prevented for even longer or put back even longer because the Central Bank keeps stimulating? Absolutely,
7: Absolutely. I mean this is just buying time for governments who find it very difficult to put through the reforms which politically I understand, don't get me wrong, but it's got to stop somewhere. Because just buying more time is not helping. I
1: know. Sir, great to have you on. Thank you so much for talking to us and You're keep doing the good work. The ING CEO there, Ralph Hans. Alright, we're gonna take a break. Still ahead. New kid on the block chain. A new crypto service just launched, one backed by the owner of the New York Stock Exchange. We speak to its COO to understand the first Bitcoin Futures Exchange launching today. Stay with us, we're back into Welcome back to First Move. Now, the first lady is not the only one making her Wall Street debut today. The long awaited crypto platform BACT launches today, offering the first physically delivered Bitcoin futures contract ever traded on a federally regulated exchange. Wow, that was a mouthful. Joining me is Adam White, the chief operating officer of BACT. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Just explain in English what this means,
8: (laughs) what this means. This is a big day, we think, not just for BACT and for the Intercontinental Exchange, but for the whole space, because for the first time ever, you have an end to end regulated marketplace for the price discovery of Bitcoin. So this new emerging asset class, you can now store in a federally regulated custodian, trade on an exchange and clear in a clearinghouse.
1: Okay. so retail participation, institutional. So we're talking bigger money, more sophisticated, arguably money coming on board? Is that what we're looking at here?
8: BACT is really here designed for the institutional trader. Right. So this is a futures contract. Uh, That said, we expect this futures contract to trade through retail brokerages as well. So retail customers can trade this contract.
1: So when we're talking about a futures contract, you're offering a daily contract. You're also offering a monthly contract, which means to your point about price discovery, we could get a sense of where people think the price is going over the next 12 months. That's
8: exactly right. So our monthly contract goes 12 months out. So what we expect to see happen is that uh, uh, traders will begin to uh, look at the uh, forward price curve to say where do they think the price of Bitcoin is going to go. And that's really important, not just for the speculators, the actual businesses that rely on using Bitcoin. So the miners are the companies that mine Bitcoin and in doing so want to hedge and manage their risk. We think this contract's a natural fit for them.
1: And it will be the first place where we actually see a A sort of clearing price for bitcoin as well because we've got so many exchanges right now that trade cryptocurrency it's tough to get a sense of it and i use this word very carefully in this space a centralized price discovery mechanism
8: that's right yeah we hope the back daily and monthly futures contracts lead price discovery because you're going to we're going to bring with it the on-ramp for institutional capital that's been waiting on the sidelines to have that end-to-end regulated marketplace This is that opportunity to come in, and we expect that that uh, price discovery process to happen through our contracts.
1: You know, we see all sorts of reports on this that the price has been inflated, that the volumes are inflated. I mean, I think Bitwise did a study recently. It said ninety-five percent of the trades on exchanges are fraudulent. They inflate. I mean, you can you can use as many different adjectives to describe this. How important is what you are presenting today to perhaps tackle some of the perceptions, the, the concerns out there about fraud and about not understanding yeah. what the volumes are.
8: We think it's massively important. And this is why uh, Backed and ICE have been working on this product for over two years. So from the ground up, we had to build a crypto custodian to safely mm-hmm. store and safeguard our customers' Bitcoin. By doing that, you can then allow a physically delivered contract which has no reliance on any of the outside unregulated spot markets. That price discovery happens fully within our ecosystem, so we think it's really important.
1: Talk about the custody arrangement, because I think this is also important. One of the big pushbacks I get in this space from people perhaps who don't know all that much is it's not safe, exchanges can be hacked talk about this situation. Yeah,
8: we're BACT is here to start changing that opinion. So earlier this summer, we got regulated by the New York Department of Financial Services as a trust. And that's really important because that makes BACT a qualified custodian of Bitcoin. So institutions that want to trade and have asset exposure to Bitcoin oftentimes are required to not only trade on regulated markets, but to store their assets in a qualified custodian. That's what we're offering.
1: Talk to me about halving, halvening because we've talked about this on the show and there are optimists who believe that this will have a positive impact on the price. If you're talking about being able to show what people believe the price of Bitcoin will be 12 months out, then if there is going to be a price increase as a result of the halvening, um, your futures contract should show that.
8: Possibly, yes. Yeah. So the, the halvening is an event in the Bitcoin network about every four years, the amount of Bitcoin that's created every 10 minutes drops in half. With that, you see, uh, you know, a diminishing supply. Mm. If the demand stays the same, oftentimes we'll see the price increase. We think this is an important part of the futures contract to help businesses kind of uh, discover what the fair market value of Bitcoin is going to be through events like that.
1: Why Bitcoin? And will you introduce everyone else? I mean, I know Bitcoin has by far the the largest market share at this moment, but there are plenty of other cryptocurrencies out there. We have some XRP enthusiasts out there that I know watch the show. What about these ones
8: we're starting with bitcoin because we talk to our customers and that's what they want to trade we also see real utility happening on the bitcoin network commerce so there are many thousands of businesses that accept bitcoin as a form of payment so starting with our marketplace that's not our end goal that's the place to allow the fair efficient price discovery process to happen from there back's doing a lot of work to help provide real utility and value to bitcoin and we expect that to happen on the payment side
1: there's lots of competition coming potentially Seed CX, True Digital, Eris X, I could name a whole load of them. Afraid?
8: No, Competition's a good thing. One, (laughs) it makes us a better company, and two, this is not necessarily going to be a winner-take-all market. We are in the very early days. We don't look at it as zero sum. We hope to be additive to the space. Mainstream
1: adoption potentially in in the future. That's right. For these cryptocurrencies. Great to have you on. Thank you. We'll track your progress. It's going to be interesting to see how it goes. All right, that just about wraps it up for the show. I want to give you a look at what we're seeing for the markets right now. We are seeing, uh, well, we're relatively unchanged. Look at that. That's deeply unexciting right now, but we've got a whole week ahead of us. We have, though, just had the U.S. manufacturing PMI coming out at uh, 51, so that's an expansionary territory, a stronger uh, reading for August, it seems. And remember, manufacturing is very much a focus at this stage in the United States. Some recessionary feel coming from that sector, uh, in particular, Of course, we know that the consumer is by far the giant share of the economy in the United States. But getting a better sense of what's going on in the manufacturing sector is going to be very important in the coming weeks and months. Can I give you a look at some of the global movers that we're watching in the show as well? I talked you through them earlier on in the session. I can just pull those up now if we can get those. There you go. As you can see, GM, one of the stocks that we continue to watch in the session right now, down some three-tenths of 1%. The strike there entering its eighth day today. day 49,000 auto workers on the picket line. So watch for headlines in particular on that one. And Alibaba, as you can see, off some 2% too. All right, you've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. Have a great Monday.
0: When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level.